0: Bible biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Esther. You can read Esther's story from Esther chapter one. I think you need to give us a bit of context, Mike. Uh, When
1: did she live? What was going on in the world at that time? Hmm. Well, Esther's story is one of those that is not set in Israel, which is where most of the story happens, of course, in the Bible. Uh, Her story is set in Persia. So how on earth did she end up there? Well, a quick recap. When Judah had continued to disobey God and refused to respond to him and the prophets that said, if we don't repent and change, the same thing will happen to us that happened to the northern tribe of Israel, we'll be exiled. And the people had said, no, 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 we've got the temple, we'll be fine. And they refused to change despite all the prophets' calls. So eventually God did send this second great empire. Assyria had conquered the northern tribes. Now Babylon has taken over from Assyria and conquered the southern nation of Judah and took God's people into exile. There were a couple of mini exiles where they took some of the leaders, but most were taken in 586 BC, exiled a thousand miles away, and settled in cities within the the Babylonian Empire and allowed to keep their identity. Now, one of those, interestingly, was Susa, which is where this story is settled. Jeremiah had said that after 70 years in exile, God would allow his people to go home. And so it happened that Babylon itself was conquered by the next great empire, Persia in 539 BC and in 538 King Cyrus allowed the Jews and other conquered peoples to go back to their homeland to rebuild their temples and to offer prayer for him. Now, not everybody rushed back. Many had settled into life. They got homes, they got jobs, they got schools for the kids. They weren't eager to go back. Only about 50,000 or so went back with that first return and rebuilt the temple encouraged by Haggai and Zechariah to get it completed. And then there's there's a gap between that 516 when the temple was completed to 458 when Ezra goes back with a second wave. And the story of Esther fits into that gap. The story starts round about 484 BC, where Esther is one of those who are still in the land of Persia and who haven't gone back with the returning exiles. So
0: she's a Jewish girl living in what essentially is a foreign land.
1: She's a Jewish girl in a foreign land. And this story is going to be told about her because she will turn out to be incredibly significant to the point of really saving the Jews from extinction. That's why she's held in such esteem. That's why her story is in the Bible. One of just... Two stories in the whole of the Bible named after women. The other, of course, is Ruth. Two books, yeah. Yeah. So who's who's in power at this point? Who's the king? The king is King Xerxes I. He was also called Ahasuerus. And like most of the Persian kings, you know, he knew what he wanted and he was pretty tough with his requirements, even to the level of his own wife. And The story starts us off in in chapter one, where the king wants to give a great banquet for all the people in his empire. And obviously, like politicians today, they want it to look good. They want all the dignitaries and the finery brought out and so on. So he has all the very best stuff done for this really, really special banquet where he wants to put on a show. And then on the seventh day of the feast, why did you get that? It'd been a seven day. Festival. That's quite a party. Yeah, there must have been a lot of food and a lot of drink there, didn't they? And on the seventh day, he sends for his queen to come. The queen had not been there. She's a lady called Vashti, Queen Vashti. And he sends for her. Now, I imagine by this point he's had quite a bit to drink, certainly after seven days. And he calls for his wife to come. To sort of show her off? I think so. I think he wanted to parade her. Um I mean, that happens sadly in life today, doesn't it? With wealthy people, particularly older men might marry a younger woman to parade her off, because what does that show? How good and great you are. And Queen Vashti just refuses to be paraded and (laughs) shown off. And she says, no, I won't come. Well, the king is absolutely livid because, of course, he's been completely shamed now. So he asks his officials, you know, what are we going to do? And they look at all their law books and everything and they say, well, it seems to us that the law of the Medes and the Persians, as they used to call it, says that she must never be allowed back in your presence again. Her punishment must be that she is to be completely banished from your presence. Why, your majesty? Because if the other men in the kingdom hear about this, who knows what the women are going to start doing. It sounds a very sexist approach these (laughs) days, doesn't it?
0: So she's cut off for not wanting to
1: join the party. Absolutely. And she's cut off and forbidden from entering the royal presence anymore. In other words, she's deposed as the queen. She's removed. So he has no queen anymore. No, which means there's a little gap at the top that he could really do with filling. And how does he do that? Well, he does it in an interesting way. He, he has the sort of equivalent of a beauty contest. Um, it's an early Miss World sort of thing that he does. And uh, his attendants, his advisors say to him, you know, let us search the empire to find some beautiful young virgins for the king. And, and then, you know, we can work on these and get them presented and, and we'll bring them to you. And whichever one pleases you most, you could make her the queen. So the king thinks, well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. So they do. And so this is where Esther comes in. This is where Esther comes in, because uh, at that time, there's a, a Jewish guy who happens to be the cousin of Esther, who knows and has learned about all that's going on. And he's got this really good looking young cousin called Esther. Now, he'd actually adopted her because she was an orphan. What's his name? He was called Mordecai. And Mordecai had adopted his cousin, presumably as an orphan, and raised her as his own daughter. So really, she was as good as his daughter. And uh, I think he realises that there's an opportunity to be made here. Now, where that came from, was it God, was it him? Do you know what? We just don't know. It's really interesting that, in this book, we don't get a mention of God's name. Not once. Not once. But it's clear God's at work behind the scenes, particularly on behalf of his people. So um, because of the king's decree, Esther, along with a whole bunch of other young women, is brought along to the harem and they begin the sort of beauty transformation process of preparing these young women. And, you know, it's so easy for us to read that. She's brought to the harem. This is this is not a pleasant way that this woman is going to have to walk. But what her cousin has said to her, what Mordecai has said is, listen, Esther, whatever you do, don't tell them your ethnic background. Don't tell them that you're Jewish. He knew there was lots of animosity at the round, so he, around at the time. So he's saying it would just be wise to keep your mouth shut, which she does. So... She follows this beauty process. It must have been a pretty incredible one. I mean, definitely bigger than going to your local cosmetics place and, you know, being done up there while everyone is watching. Because it says that each young woman was taken and she was given 12 months of beauty treatment. Go. Cool. I mean, this must be worth something. Before she's taken to the king and, yeah, difficult part of the story, before she's taken to the king's bed and it's like, I don't know, he's trying them all out to find which is the one that he likes the most. So there she is in this harem, a tough situation for someone to be in. But the king suddenly gets smitten with her. In chapter two, we read that the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. And he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head. He makes her his queen. I think it says a lot about Esther. You know, we're not always given the background details, but if you think there must have been hundreds of women who were brought in for him to choose from, there would have been the best, the prettiest, the smartest. And this woman stands out somehow. And I suspect it was not just her looks, but her character. And she uses that now to find a significant place that is going to be used to ultimately save the Jewish people. But, you know, it was at considerable cost to herself. And sometimes serving God's people costs us. It's not always comfortable. It's not always easy. And it certainly wasn't for her.
0: So she finds herself queen. What sort of world was that palace, that, that court?
1: Oh, it would have been incredible. I mean, The Persian palaces were some of the finest that the world has ever known. It would have been splendid. The rooms, the furnishings, the food, the drink, the servants. Suddenly, you know, she's whisked out of this little Jewish home somewhere to be in a fabulous royal palace. But remember, at a huge cost to herself. Because nobody knew she was a Jewess? Not at all. And the story says that she continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. So clearly at this time, though we're not told about it yet, clearly there was a lot of anti-Jewish feeling, anti-Semitic feeling, we might say today. Interestingly, that sort of stuff still hangs around at times, doesn't it? And can still be as poisonous as it would have been in those days. So... She's told to keep it quiet. And I I think Mordecai must have done that because he could see something coming out of this. I I don't think he knew all the details of what was going to come here, but it's like he wanted someone on the inside because he knew something was coming. And I, I think there must have been sights and sounds and smells of things happening, as it were, that he had picked up.
0: There were sort of enemies in the shadows.
1: Yes, and it's not long before they come out of those shadows. Because um, chapter three tells us about um, a man called Haman. He's an Agagite. He comes from Agag. And he's there serving the king as one of his officials. But for some reason, Haman is profoundly anti-Jewish. He just hates them, as we see many times in history. He really dislikes them, and he's looking, I think, for an opportunity for this to happen. And he's he's certainly very full of himself. Chapter 3 tells us that all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by because the king had commanded it. So clearly this is a key man for the king. Hmm. And he said, whenever Haman passes by, you're all to bow down. But here's an interesting verse. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. We're not told why here, but again, was it because of this background story of the hatred of the Jews? And so this is gonna come to conflict because uh, Haman is not a man to put up with people who do not give him the sort of respect that he feels he deserves. And so we read that when Haman saw Mordecai wouldn't bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. And listen, he had learned of Mordecai's nationality. So he knew it. He knew that he was a Jew. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Now reflect on that for a moment. The entire empire. So this was not just about getting rid of our friend Mordecai. It was not just about getting rid of Jews in Susa. This was about a determination to get rid of Jews across the whole of the empire. And that would, of course, have stretched right back to Jerusalem itself, which was still a part of the Persian Empire. So this really is an attempt at absolute obliteration of the Jewish race.
0: Would we call that ethnic cleansing nowadays?
1: We would, wouldn't we? And we know it's not that long ago in European history that there was an attempt to do exactly that. Here is an expression of that, but on a vast, vast scale that is about to be thwarted.
0: So this man's life is driven by hate, as far as we can tell?
1: It seems to be driven by sheer hatred of Jewish people. Isn't it funny that so often happens these days that there can be a lot of anti-Semitic feeling? and when you push and ask people why, it's very often they don't know why. And they've got also, oh, they take all the money, they take all the jobs, which is what they say about other things. But here's something quite profound against this group of God's own people, just sheer hatred of them for who they are. So
0: what is Haman's plan?
1: How is he going to exterminate the Jews? Well, he needs the king, obviously. This is not something he can do himself. So he approaches the king, approaches King Xerxes, and he, he says, well, there's a certain race of people uh, scattered across all the provinces of your empire. And here's his accusation, who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Clearly, Jewish practices and what they wear often do mark them out as different. And he didn't like that. He wanted everyone to be like him. And he goes on to say their laws are different from those of any other people. And then he adds this little twist. So they refused to obey the laws of the king. Uh, that wasn't true. You know, they had been obedient to the law of the king. And so he says, uh, frankly, your majesty, it's, it is not in your interest to let this people live. And what I recommend is that uh, you issued a decree that every single one of them would be destroyed. Uh, oh, no, by the way, your majesty, if you do, uh, I'll deposit uh, 10,000 very large sacks of silver in the government administrators and the royal treasury um, to help cover the expenses of that. So he hates them that much. He's prepared to cover the cost of it. So he hates them because they keep themselves separate. They're different. He hates them because he says their laws are different. He lies about them disobeying the king. And of course, the minute he said that to the king, the king's really got little choice but to deal with a group that he's told is deliberately disobeying him. And what approach does Haman take then to, what does his plot involve? So his plot involves having the king's decree put in writing, spread across the whole of the empire, setting a date that on March the 7th, in our dating, March the 7th, the following year, every single Jew across the empire is to be exterminated. And they make a copy of this and they pass it all around the empire And there's his plan. And he sits back in the palace, rubbing his hands, thinking, at last, I'm about to get rid of these nasty people that I've always hated.
0: So bearing in mind his hatred for all Jews, was he
1: aware that Esther was a Jew, the queen? No, he wasn't. They kept that very, very quiet. I don't know how they'd done it, but they had. And this is what Mordecai is now going to use, because he hears, obviously about what's going to happen. And the first thing he does is he he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he prays and he seeks God. And that's the first thing he does. But then he goes to Queen Esther, his cousin. his as good as daughter, remember. And says to her, daughter, I've just discovered this terrible plan. And he unfolds to her what it is that Haman wants to do. And the plans that are being made ahead. And there's this lovely point where he says to her, you know, Esther, who knows, but you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. This is why you've been through all that you've been through. This is God's moment for you. I know it's not been easy, but who knows if this isn't why God put you in this place. And if you keep quiet at a time like this, you know, what's going to happen? Well, deliverance may come from another place. But I think, Esther, this is your moment. And so she sends this reply to him and she says, go and get gather the Jews in Susa. Start them praying and fasting for me. We, If we're going to move ahead on this, this is going to need some prayer backup first. So she gets all of them praying and she needs to go to the king with her request.
0: But she has no authority of
1: her own to make these decisions to save her people. None whatsoever. Really, it's the king and the king alone. And so she knows that he likes a bit of flattery. She knows he likes to be at the centre of attention. So in chapter five, she goes to him and says, oh, by the way, I've planned a a really, really uh, special banquet for you today that I'd really love you to come to. And it's while they're there at the banquet, the king turns to her and he says, so tell me, come on, what do you really want? He's a wise (laughs) old bird, isn't he? He says, what's your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And Esther says, this is my request. If I found favour with you and it pleases the king, "Um, please come with Haman tomorrow to a banquet that I'll prepare for you. And then I'll tell you what it's all about. Very wise, doing it little by little.
0: She could have had half the kingdom.
1: She could have had half the kingdom for herself. Isn't that interesting? And yet, yeah, she gave that up because she knew there was a bigger call on her life that really was going to involve the whole of God's people. So here she is. she set up this banquet for the king and she's specified for you and for Haman. Well, Haman's cock a hoop, isn't he? You just think, oh, the queen has invited me at last. I'm being recognised. For who I am so you know he gathers all his friends to it and and tells them the queen's invited me to a banquet I'm the special guest you know we're the two big honors but do you know what all of that's still a bad taste in my mouth as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting out there and so it's actually Haman's wife, a lady called Zeresh and along with his friend says, do you know what I would do? Set up a sharpened pole, 75 feet high. That's pretty tall, isn't it? It is. So a 75 feet high, sharpened pole. And when you're at the banquet, ask the king to impale that Jew, Mordecai, on it. Knowing the king would say yes. And Haman goes to bed rubbing his hands that night. Because not only is he about to go to the banquet of a lifetime, he's about, he thinks, to get rid of this man he hates so much.
0: And is that how it turns out?
1: Not at all. In fact, it's going to turn out very different because that night the uh, the king has sleeping trouble and he he can't get to sleep. And, you know, some of us, when we can't get to sleep, we might turn on the radio, or we might open our Kindle or or whatever it might be, or we might turn on UCB to listen to it. But what he did was he sent for the history books of his reign, which sounds, man, that would send me to sleep as well, isn't it? <laughs> So he starts reading through the history books and in these records he discovers uh, an account of how Mordecai had helped him and exposed a plot in the past and he'd never been rewarded for it. <laughs> so the king thinks, "Blow me, I you know, there's this guy who saved my life once and I never did anything for him." And so he says to his sentence, "You know, what what shall we do for this guy because nothing's been done for him and as it happened Haman's in the outer court. So they call him in. He's actually coming in to ask for permission to impale Mordecai on the pole the next day. So he comes in thinking, yeah, this is my moment. The king's invited me in. Uh, he wants to honour me. And the king says to him, um, doesn't tell him the name. He said, what, what should be done for a man that I really, really want to honour? And of course, Haman thinks he means him. So he lays it on thick and he says, well, your majesty, you know, if you really want to honour someone, uh, I think, you know, bring out one of your royal robes and one of your royal horses and, uh, you know, let the robes and the horse be handed over to this guy and etc., uh, etc. Et let a big fuss be made of this man. And the king says, absolutely excellent. Great idea. That's what we'll do. Quick, take my robes and my horse and do just as you've said for Mordecai imagine the look on his face at this point when Haman has to take the very things he's wanted for himself and give to the man whom he planned to impale upon this pole. He's even more livid now, isn't he?
0: Talking about swallowing his pride.
1: That's what he had to do. Absolutely.
0: So is that what happened? That the king did honour Mordecai?
1: Yeah, the king honours Mordecai. And of course, there's this banquet. The other theme of the story is the banquet for the king and Haman. And Haman comes along to it. It's still been honoured, but I think it's still buzzing and fizzing about what had happened, really. When the king is wined and dined, he said, "Okay, queen, come on. What is it you want? I did promise you that I'd give you even up to half my kingdom. And that's when Esther realises that her moment has come. She said, "Okay, I can ask you for whatever I want. Well, King, I'm asking that the life of myself and my people will be spared because there is this plot to absolutely exterminate all the Jews and your majesty, that includes me. I'm one of them. The king's livid because it's not just about the Jews now, it's about his beautiful, precious wife. And he says, who on earth would do such a thing? And Esther says, the wicked Haman is our adversary, an enemy. And and Haman, of course, now is terrified. He says that he went pale with fright before the king and queen. And the king is absolutely outraged. The plot is exposed. The plot is exposed and that this would affect not just the Jews, but it would affect his own precious wife, who he'd not known was a Jew, but still loved. And so the king says, would this man dare assault the queen? There's a stake outside that's been prepared. Impale him on it. And so Haman gets impaled on the very pole that he had prepared for Mordecai, the Jew, to be impaled upon. He was
0: treated to his own injustice.
1: Yeah, he got his just desserts. But of course, the story's not over. Because what about the Jews? She's been spared and Mordecai's been spared. But what about this decree? And the king can't overrule it because in those days, the law of the Medes and Persians meant laws couldn't be revoked. Once a king had signed a law into being, it was the law. It could not be revoked. So he could not turn around and say, well, I've changed my mind. Let's revoke that. The only way to do it was to issue another law. And so Esther, very wise lady that she is. And she says, King, we we need a a solution here. And so what the solution that's proposed to him is that a different law is enacted because you can't get rid of the previous one. And this law says that throughout the empire, any Jew may lawfully take up arms to protect himself and slaughter anyone who comes to kill him. So, in effect, the king has made it absolutely impossible for this decree to be carried out because no one's going to want to do it at the risk of losing their own life. And so uh, the book ends up with this great celebration amongst all the Jews that they've actually been spared through this incredible intervention of Esther. And it's actually a festival that still continues to this day. Jews call it the festival of Purim. And uh, kids get dressed up in costumes and they give presents to one another. And it all goes back to remember this time in the Old Testament when there was this attempt by Haman to absolutely wipe out um, the people of God. And the book of Esther is read in their synagogues on that day as just a grateful remembrance of all that God did for them.
0: It's almost too remarkable to be true, but it is a true story. It really did happen. And if it had gone any other way, how would history have changed?
1: My goodness, just think about that. If what Haman had wanted to happen had happened, if every single Jew throughout the empire had been executed, there would have been no Jews, no Jewish history, No ancestors of Jesus, no Jesus, no salvation. So what this woman did, didn't just save a bunch of Jews in those days. She made possible the continuation of the story that started way back with Abraham and that works its way through the Old Testament and continues in Jesus, the promised Messiah, and carries on still today. This is a woman we ought to be really grateful for. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.